Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. Hello, I'm your host, Chris Sands, and today I'm in uh, Virginia, I believe Sterling, Virginia, at a conference for beer writers and bloggers. And... This episode will most likely be the best one yet because this morning I attended a session on how to podcast and it was presented. (laughs) Wait, we're not supposed to talk yet. You're laughing over there. I know. But so apparently that I, the person that I thought was going to up the level of my podcast is completely blowing the intro. So that's snide laughing is our friend Liz Murphy from Naptown Pint. Hello. She taught me how to podcast this morning, so this is guaranteed to be the best episode yet. You're welcome. And then also joining us, who I'm sure is actively regretting her decision, is Julia Hers from the Brewers Association. Not of Maryland, which is normally who I'm talking to, but the big Brewers Association, the National Brewers Association. But I'm from Maryland, so there's relevance to your sentence and intro. Thank you. So we can't say Maryland at the end also. I had no idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So first, let's let, uh, let's let everyone know what your long title is. Uh, craft Beer Program Director at the Brewers Association. Thank you. So what exactly does that mean? What do you do for the Brewers Association? Um, I know one thing you do is a great service is the pairing beer and food yeah that's that's kind of a sideline gig almost uh big picture role is advocate and educator for craft brewers so i literally positioned to be a voice for craft brewers and help advance the awareness of what they do so there's that and then under that umbrella are many things beer and food pairing is definitely a labor of love and, and a tactic to i think awareness for craft beer and advancing the entire beverage in the u.s so I really, I, I love that foray. I spend a lot of time talking about the business of beer, and I also always try and insert the sensory side of beer, too, because that's, that's where, really why we're all here and, and I think why it's the number one beverage in the U.S. So in your position, is it more of like a consumer-facing uh, programming, or is it focused towards helping the breweries do those things or is it just a combination it's of a both? big uh potpourri uh melting pot of things i i work a lot with brewers so industry stakeholders brewers allied trade retailers media i consider one of the stakeholders within the industry wholesalers i do talks and in engagement um, and writing to an audience to me that's all of those people And then the beer lover component of it, too, is a a pretty huge part of what we're doing. Um, You know, you have a definition of craft brewers and who they are, whether you understand what that is or or, um, back it is neither here nor there. It's a tried and tested definition since 2006, but craft brewers are small, independent, and traditional. 98% of the 6,600 plus breweries today are small, independent, and traditional. And so my education um, behind talking about who is a craft brewer um, really is relevant to the stakeholders that are craft brewers, the people that support the craft brewing community. As you know, we wouldn't have canning and craft beer be 18% of what 
what craft brewers produce today is in cans, unless the allied trade had kind of, the, the stakeholders on that side had come up along with their ability technology-wise and supported that side of it. And we wouldn't be having craft brewers in this full flavor movement in the U.S. had the beer lovers not had that kind of trickle-down economics, the opposite of Reaganism, <laughs> right? We all had to walk into our, you know, uh, retailers decades ago uh, us, some of us, or our parents um, at the time, and say, why aren't you carrying my local beer at the liquor store, at the supermarket, on your restaurant menu? And so I spent a lot of time talking to beer lovers about how they, you know, um, can advance and enhance their beer appreciation, too. So I, I, that's something I want to touch on. Do you find now with a greater um, awareness of craft beer in people in the very large eat drink local movement is it easier to get products on shelves or the fact that the large breweries have become that much larger and then they also own brands that have kind of obfuscated the definition of craft breweries that the does that outweigh the greater awareness of craft breweries it's a great question. And is it easier kind of to boil it down? Yes and no, because we're in changing tide, I think, for what's gone on beer in the U.S. You look at statistics in 2017, beer, the overall category was down 1%. Um, but craft brewers grew by 5% um, in volume. And so we're still seeing growth, but a softening of growth. So it's getting less easy. We had this resurgence. I showed in the talk at Beer Bloggers Conference where we sit here today, you know, my favorite headline to nitpick because that seems to be one of my things, um, was the adage <laughs> was the adage of beer is dead article from 2005, Advertising Age magazine. And it really was poignant to see that blip in time. And then now here we are in this incredible beer revolution. So we've gained a lot for the beverage of beer. But does the beverage of beer still have stigma behind it? Does it still Is it still perceived as beer bongs and beer bellies? Yes. And so I think it's, it's easier to open a brewery today um, and think that you might, one version of the American dream, that you might be able to get your beer on the liquor store shelf or the restaurant menu. But it's harder today than it was for, say, you know, a dogfish of San Calgione who spoke today, uh, yesterday about a lot of the history and the challenges and the headwinds that these heritage craft brewers are going through. And then you bring up a great point that big brewers have gotten into the full flavored beer space. They've acquired formerly independent breweries. They're not transparent about it. Um, so they've learned, you know, a, a lot of things from the small and independent craft brewers playbook. Um, but one of them that not that's not sticking is authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. I want to see that Devil's Backbone is owned by Anheuser-Busch InBev. I fully respect Devil's Backbone. They're making kick-ass beers. I tasted them yesterday in a full sensory with a master Cicerone paired with the Devil's Backbone brewer, right? That is great for beer education. But we want some of what made this whole thing great. That authenticity, that true small entrepreneur spirit to stay alive instead of some of the craft washing that we're seeing appear today and some of that, you know, um, corporatizing. I don't think I've ever heard that term before. Oh, yeah. Washing. I have a whole piece on like it that. on my blog. Speaking of blogging, well, you know, go ahead, Liz. Of, uh, no, I was just going to say, speaking of nitpicking headlines, I remember I actually saw one recently where it was like how Anheuser Busch has become one of the biggest craft brewers in the country. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> They've acquired craft brewers. They are not, therefore, a craft brewer. Like, it doesn't work that way. That was a nice distinction I liked during your talk yesterday um, between craft beer and craft breweries, where the, you can say that they're making craft beer. I mean, I also like the term full-flavored beers. 
Um, but they're not, that does not make you a craft brewery. That the craft brewery is independent mm-hmm. and not part of a large international conglomeration. Yeah, big time. And the craft brewers define themselves. That's one of the points I really wanted to share with bloggers yesterday in the opening talk was, you know, you can talk all about what is and isn't a craft brewer and is it relevant. Number one, we have data to show that it is relevant to many beer lovers, not all. Um, And number two, you've got this definition that's tried and tested from the membership themselves. So the national association that I'm with, Brewers Association, we don't just put on Great American Beer Festival and publish amazing beer books and websites like craftbeer.com. We have this definition so we can then collect statistics on what's going on for craft brewers and actually be their voice as their national association. And so the membership every year could change that. They could decide But since 2006, this definition has only changed twice, and that is pretty static, I would say. And it's a very inclusive definition, as I said, with 98% of the 6,600-plus breweries. But we are very front and center to say we don't define craft beer. Um, That's different things to different beer lovers. But the catch is, since we're talking about this so quick out of the gates, um, is that it's being redefined, right? What is craft beer? largest global brewer in the world wants to be considered a craft brewer now and they're presenting and marketing themselves as such and you know will that be good for craft brewers overall jury's still out but i think you get at the point that i'm i'm kind of trying to make is you know craft beer is sacred craft brewers and being one of those is sacred and big brewers don't need the representation frankly or the um uh, you know, the label of that. They do what they do on their own enough. They're very diversified. They're getting into spirits and wine, right? It's not just all about the beer. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot to analyze. Yeah, um, we have a couple places in Maryland now that have all three, like they, they produce all three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Liz is being surprisingly quiet. I know. This is, I think this Go is the Liz. longest Bring her period. In. Bring the her lo- in. The longest <laughs> periods of times I've ever heard you be quiet. No, I know. So one of the things, actually, Julia, that was kind of rolling over in my mind, you said it very briefly, was the, the stigma around beer. And, and I noticed, I remember, what was it, a couple of years ago when you were talking at the Craft Brewers Conference in Philadelphia, um, you know, you talked a lot about really educating people about beer and food pairing. And that's something I've noticed where, you know, I know you work a lot with Roast House Pub, Chris, yeah. who does a really great job of integrating beer into their menus and doing creative culinary experiences with beer but there's still kind of that barrier to entry for a lot of people where they just view it as a pedestrian beverage no matter how much you talk about the artistry the craftsmanship where you take a look at the diversity of styles and versatility of flavor and how that really lends itself to pairing it it, it's something where I struggle with that myself with getting a lot of my friends to understand there's just like a it's not just, you know, it, it is a lot about the respect for the beverage, but at the same time, it's also just a lot more fun. Like if people would take off their, you know, judgmental Judy caps and just like have a little fun. What's yeah. a without fail, um, if the Frederick News Post runs an article about a brewery or anything to do with beer, um, there's going to be at least five or so comments of people accusing the newspaper of promoting drunken driving. Wow. It could be, it could literally be that this, this brewery opened and that's all like just a quick business. I don't understand why the newspaper is promoting drunken driving. And would that ever come up about wine, which is, 
you know, traditionally average wine is 12 to 13 percent alcohol. The majority of um, beers and Brewers Association, we have our, our world beer style guidelines. They are 160 plus beer styles. Most of those are less than 5% alcohol. Mm-hmm. So, or, you know, on average. And so I think it's fascinating. And the beer, back to beer and food, because I love how we're weaving it back. Um, and it's become more than just a tactic to me, but a passion project where I want to be empowered in that is wine gets so much play for being the sensory beverage. And when we at the Brewers Association got into the space to really try to use um, the uh, ability to pair beer and food as one way to help retailers have more success, right, and better sales and, and more interest from beer lovers, uh, we found out that of the 600 culinary institutions that we could survey, and it still hasn't changed, I've been saying this for four years now, because we finally have a database of them, there's not one that has this beer education on the same level as wine for their accredited programs. And that's crazy to me, and then this is the part of the conversation where I always bring up the sales, of beer is $111 billion in the United States for sales, imported beer, domestically produced beer, and wine $62 billion. I was surprised by that statistic. I guess I just kind of would have thought that there was more wine sold than beer it's not i mean in it on premise or restaurants where we sit and appreciate it look at the price point of wine and it's certainly much less accessible to the average jane and um and joe so you'd think that retailers judgmental (laughs) judy that's i was actually i was trying to go for that but i (laughs) forgot what she said that name um the retailers have have space to get the more Get, to get their pairings to be more accessible. So we want to see more beer pairings on menus, just like wine. And we want to see beer get equal footing, just like wine. That's the fair way. And that's, frankly, taste-wise, the people kind of demand it. What's weird, though, is, Chris, you, when you said that about how you always get comments, like whether you're talking about a beer dinner or promoting a brewery, you know, there's this weird thing that I've seen also where we saw at the, at the they have, we have something called Alcohol Day, uh, during the Legislative General Assembly here in Maryland. And a lot of what came up was like every time somebody was talking about a brewery, a lot, there was a lot of negative comp- connotation wrapped around what beer does to communities. Yeah. And when I sit here and think about wow. beer versus wine versus spirits, I'm wow. like, guys, of all of the offenders we have across the table, we're talking about beer where the majority of the beer styles out there are sessionable. But they were, I remember there was, I don't remember who it was, but one of the legislators said, I don't know, I guess I'm just used to regular beer. As if to have something was that was... It, wait, wait, wait. I, I regular? Believe, I believe that was the one who's that had a DUI in Ocean City. Yes, Holy. he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I believe that's who said that. So I know it's kind of drifting from the topic of beer and food, but there is this weird sort of narrative where people for some reason are just, or not everybody, but there's a lot of rejection around beer in a lot of ways. I mean, I like to say that tradition trumps taste when it comes to beer. And the tradition of the beverage of beer is, you know, American lager, let's face it, and frankly advertised as a beverage to be enjoyed by LDA or legal drinking adults 21 to 34, and not as a beverage that we that elevates the food experience. It was just usually drink-based occasions in the way it was advertised. So I can't blame us as a culture for being stuck in that mode, but it's 2018, people. Yeah. Like, yeah. get with the times. Listen to the sales numbers I just shared. And what Liz is emulating, I mean, craft brewers alone, 
um, $3 million in donations to charitable causes. Um, and we've got, we've got more than 10 million people that toured breweries uh, in 2014 as one stat, and it's more since we just haven't crunched it in a while. We've got well, beer tourism. A, so much is going thing, on. It, it's amazing how many <coughs> breweries' websites you go onto, and they have a dedicated section of their website to request donations like this oh, is yeah. this is the process for asking us to support they, your they are so engaged and get so many requests and so many charitable causes depend on breweries each year year in and year out to support them on a very very ma- micro local level yeah when i did the fundraiser for the capital what was it like a month ago i we had like six days to pull it get together and like breweries were tripping over themselves to bring stuff we had breweries ringing stuff in the door while the fundraiser was happening saying here we want to donate this here we want to donate that and cindy mulliken who is one of the co-founders of mully's brewery and prince frederick great and she's brewery. All, oh yeah and great she, people she's also the new president of the brewers association yes. of maryland you know, she had a really good talking point that I am now going to butcher because that's my job, um, <laughs> where she really talked about the fact that, you know, in some ways she resents the implication that some that tap rooms are can be a menace to public safety. Yeah. Because she sees, you know, especially as they're becoming, they're proliferating more, they're becoming more like neighborhood and community anchors. The last thing they want to do is hurt the community that they call home. I mean, it's where, where I go, go to play home. Jenga. You know, yeah. Exactly, and I'm really bad at it. Last time I lost a Jenga, it fell on me. I'm like, all right, I got it. You know, like life-size did, Jenga or tabletop. It Jenga? was life-size Jenga yeah, those on are a fun. table. Those are fun. It's fun. It was fun. It was <laughs> fine. Liz so, not her thing. What, to to the uh, stereotypes of like the craft beer consumer and the um, wine consumer. There's a cider cidery in Maryland who has chosen, even though in, it may be in actually a nationwide designation, I'm not sure, where a cidery is licensed as a winery. <clears throat> they have joined the Brewers Association and choose to go to beer festivals instead because they found that when they're at wine festivals that the people at wine festivals are there to get drunk. They're not there to learn about the product. Oh, wow. And so much about being a cidery is education because people don't have as much education when it comes to that. But people at beer festivals are there. I mean, of course, there are definitely going to be people there who just want to get drunk. But so there's a much larger percentage of the people at a beer festival are there to learn and to ask questions. To show off that they know what the word diacetyl means. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> That's 80%. <laughs> So we got way into the meat and potatoes of everything more quickly than I thought we would. So let's rewind. I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. How did you, where did your passion for craft beer come from? Because I assume you have a passion for craft beer. It all comes back to the brick skiller. So having said, I grew up in this area. Oh, I, I love the brick skiller. I, I mean, came oh. and went, right? Is the beer baron going strong? Or beer they... baron's still there. Okay, so I haven't visited since the purchase years ago, um, but growing up in the Maryland, D.C. suburbs, I will call it the burbs, please <laughs> do not judge me, that uh, my dad was always a foodie. Um, I remember him drinking Canadian beers like Labatt's and Moosehead and, you know, bringing harp into the house. And he had a fridge downstairs and he was experimental. And he always tried to get me to try things like sushi and and different things. And so 
one when I came of age in 18, this is how aged I am, I could go into D.C. It was one of the <laughs> last years as a legal drinking adult um, across the Maryland district line. And Garrett Oliver, when he worked for Manhattan Brewing Company before Brooklyn, was giving a talk. I still have one of the glasses from that talk that night. And he gave a speech that kind of really just blew me away. And it was at the Brick Skeller. My dad and I just kind of special dad-daughter thing. Went and had a proper beer tasting for the first time, right? With Led by one of the world's foremost beer educators, Garrett Oliver. And coupled with that, my brother always collected a beer can collection. So the Brick Skeller wasn't just where we went to see Garrett Oliver. The reason we knew Garrett was speaking there is because my parents every few months would take us to the Brick Skeller to, to fuel my brother's beer can collection. And that was for, you know, years. So before I was 10, because of the Brick Skeller, I was thinking about the beverage of beer in different packages with different marketing with, from different producers from all over the world, from different areas of geography, with different histories, different business owners, different flavor profiles, different colors in the glass. And my parents were always having it with beer and food. It wasn't just beer, drink occasion. It was beer, get your, get your different things that my brother needed that night. Have them open it up, um, maybe upside down if they were going to drink it or some, because you couldn't really leave with full. Some they gave away to tables around us because they wanted to be responsible. So I had <laughs> all of this exposure at just this table at the Brickskeller every few months for years. And so that, that a lot of that fueled things and then um, broadcast journalism major got a job at Washington DC Bureau which was great my parents were like cool she's on the track um, <laughs> I gave it a good three years kind of hated it really good people I just didn't know how to make it happen um, but I learned a lot learned to think big at those years Larry King live crossfire on the weekends I was getting to weekend produce field produce it was great experience quit my job there though for very wise reasons and went cross-country for a year Traveled, BLM, National Forest, National Park, went to brew pubs and camps with my friend Christy, who also quit her job and would go integrate into the beer scenes because that was where we always found like-minded people. And on that job, I, or I mean, on that year off, I actually volunteered at the Great American Beer Festival. So that's how I found my way to the Brewers Association. So how long have you been with the Brewers Association? Um, well, I've been a member of the American Homebrewers Association as another piece of the story since Charlie Papazian, out of a couple hundred people, picked my name out of a hat at a beer festival in Colorado. So after that trip, I went back to start working at CNN and then said, and freaked out one night jogging in a field. I'm like, oh my God, I just picked up to where, you know, to come back where I left off. No, I don't want to be back here. <laughs> so I, I didn't go through with the new job and moved back out west and had my heart warmed from Colorado and my GABF experience and all that. And um, that was in 92 when I moved out. Um, and by the end of that, era that decade I got a job at the BA so 2000 you know I've been I've been at the BA collectively almost 15 years I could keep going on and on because there's many tangents I left yeah. and then came back so I'm also a boomeranger working for the National Association so I really have perspective <laughs> I left and I could have stayed away <laughs> but then Ray Daniels quit his job um, he was always a mentor of mine. We were always very close and like-minded, collaborating, just like everybody does in the beer world. And when he left, four different people in five months told me about his job. And I had a toddler on the hip and another newborn that wasn't even six months old. And so I kept saying, talk to the hand. I don't need a job <laughs> for another year. And then eventually I just couldn't. Fourth person that told me, I'm like, all right, I'll go in for an interview. And then it all worked out. So what do um, conferences like this, the 
Beer Bloggers and Writers Conference mean to the the Brews Association? It, I mean, it's become one of my favorite conferences of the year. These are our people. We're each other's people, right? Um, and so the BA, through my involvement at Beer Bloggers and going to the first, and Zephyr Adventures reaching out to us to just have me speak, that was the beginning of much more. I, well, it, this is not just a conference I, I speak at. That would be so strange. Like, I get to come here and interface with people that inspire me, and Liz and I are going to connect and talk, and she's inspiring me to do things because I'm going to not let her not inspire me. <laughs> and, you know, that's the collective powwow that goes on here is, I think, very meaningful. And I think the Brewers Association has always had a great um, approach since I've been involved towards beer bloggers, right? I mean, our media passes. When you have a badge at Great American Beer Festival or Craft Brewers Conference, it means something. We do say no to people. As few as we can handle, but we have criteria and standards, and we I've seen beer bloggers mature as I've professionally matured, as a category and a group of stakeholders. It's not beer media and then the beer bloggers anymore. The beer bloggers are a part of the beer media, and I think part of that has been us interfacing each year my colleague Andy Sparhawk is here, who's an amazing writer for craftbeer.com and an editor. Um, you know, I have coworkers that we get to come each year because I think this conference is meaningful, not just to attend, but to learn from the beer bloggers and continue to help give you guys, um, you know, as much credit as credit is due. Me again? Hi. Well, I, I mean, I just thought <laughs> yeah. you, you seemed due to say something. <laughs> I, do you, Overdue do I to like say a, something. Do I want to like know how, I wonder how Liz <laughs> got into beer. Um, because I was broke, uh, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. <laughs> so uh, this was actually back when I was living in Washington, D.C. And at the time, we had a couple of friends who worked at Three Stars. Um, we had a friend of ours who was, you know, really, really into beer. And none of us were really super into D.C. bar prices. So what we would do is we would just hang out. And the guys who worked at Three Stars would, like, bring by a couple growlers and then the guy who was just really into beer, I would just, I became like this weird kind of guinea pig because I would never say no to anything. And it became really fascinating to me where it would be, you know, he would put a Saison DuPont in front of me and then also give me a left hand, but then also give me a Mama's Little Yellow Pills. And those were all equally beer. And that I thought was really neat. But the, there was this kind of click for me in my brain when I was starting to just go to bottle shops and just like buy random things. And I saw a bottle of Zoe from Maine Beer Company. It has this little smiley face and I'm sitting there, you know, on my couch, sprawled out, aggressively using my dog as a pillow. Uh, and he tries to get away, it's not happening. And I just kind of, you know, was lazy and I turned the bottle around and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but if, like if you turn the bottle around on most main beer, main beers, it has the story about why they chose that name or something about the beer. And it turned out the Zodi was the name of one of the brother's daughters. And the beer was named after her. And it was a smile because he wanted to create a beer as bright as his daughter's smile the first time I think she saw a particular kind of whale. And I was just like, oh my God. That's the sweetest you ugly ever. cry? It's a beautiful, delightful, dainty <laughs> cry. Thank you very much. Ugly cry. Oh my God. I save ugly cry. What's the rule by Ron Swanson? Funerals in the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was just kind of that moment where it was really storytelling. But for me, when it was like when it started to go into writing, I 
grew to really appreciate and enjoy beer in D.C. just as a beverage, but there's something about Maryland, man. Like, I remember I used to make the joke, you know, you'll put your flag in Old Bay on everything, and if somebody doesn't let you, they are <laughs> escorted to the border to go to Virginia. And thus they should be. <laughs> exactly. I know. I learned this. I When I first moved in with Patrick, he had, like, eight different kinds of Old Bay in his uh, cabinet, and I started trying to, like, pare that down. I I almost got dumped. <laughs> that marriage almost ended before we even got to engagement. Um, but I, there was just something really passionate about, like, once you start talking about the people. And that's what I was talking about during the session this morning. You know, it's, it, it, beer is, is a powerful, diverse, and beautiful beverage. But really what makes it pop is the context around it. You know, who are the people that made it? Why do I have this particular beer that sticks out of my brain because of a particular memory? Like Unibrew's La Fin de Monde, which I ordered in a bar not knowing what it was because I took like two French courses and I was trying to impress a guy who was older <laughs> than me. And I'm like, La Fin de Monde. I, I like to over. say it too, La Fin de Monde. I say it a lot. But here's the worst part. I leaned over and I'm like, it means the end of the world in French. And I'm like, oh, looking back and I'm like, God, I'm the worst. But I remember sitting there just like in fear, like that fear of like, what did I just do? Is he really worth this? Is he that cute? Okay, yeah, he is cute. But like, I literally just ordered a beer called the end of the world. And what does that mean? <laughs> and then it ended up being this like beautiful beer in a tulip glass. And there was just like this, mer the meringue almost on top. And that's like the fact that that memory is so vivid for me because of context and story. Yeah. And I, you know, Patrick's like, please don't tell me your feelings, just write them and share them with <laughs> other people. So that like with the writing, <laughs> it ended up just kind of merging the two. So that's that's my story. And I'll make sure to check back in in another five to six minutes with another opinion. All right. And you, and I'll jump in and say you bring up uh, Maine Bre Brewing Company or Maine Beer Co. And Dan Kleban is on the board of directors for mm -hmm. the Brewers Association. And so what a great tie-in of like, you had this local epiphany from a beer that was allowed to be frankly distributed in your state mm -hmm. and it moved you so to literally change your entire course just from that label of one of the brothers having a daughter that really that story and you have people that give back to the craft brewing community and if you look at the board of directors of the Brewers Association it's pretty amazing and powerful Julie from Denizens out of Maryland yeah. is um, on our board and she was at the conference yesterday and did a great uh, panel on diversity talk and she's chair of our diversity committee but I love seeing these breweries throughout my career that not only give back to their backyard community their local state guilds but that are also get involved in their national association because that's where really the wow I think starts to happen and that's why craft brewers finally have a seat at the table and a, and a voice and tax relief for only two years that we want to see become permanent and all the initiatives that we've been able to forward is because you've got things firing finally on all cylinders yet you've got this tension and this change beer market where you know we're not reaching critical mass per se but we are definitely reaching a place where everybody wants a piece of the pie so what would you say right now is the number one issue that the Brewers Association needs to focus on well we do too and it's promote and protect that's okay. the easy way to explain it um, uh, protect is tax relief it's government affairs efforts it's supporting all 50 state brewers guilds we have an executive director guild program where we fund some of the EDs for guilds 
Um, and then the uh, also tied to protect, I would call our technical and our quality beer efforts because that protects beer. If brewers make world class beer, they're protected. If brewers are safe in breweries, you know, that's they're protected. So that's a lot of the protect. And then the promote is um, a lot of what I do. I'm the promote side for the BA, and and that is the independent craft brewer seal and craftbeer.com celebrating craft brewer stories and, and getting out there and doing sensory beer tastings and elevating beer pairing. Um, you know, and teaching retailers how to win at retail with beer. So beer helps them be successful and the beer lovers get them the access to the beers that they want. So those are kind of the two main things. So I have a question about the independent beer seal. Look, I came in. I came in early. She brought herself in. That's good. (laughs) Guns blazing. Um, No, I have a question about the independent beer seal because I I sometimes hear mixed messages about that uh, or at least mixed reactions because in the beer community, everybody has an opinion about everything. But I'd love to hear from your perspective why that seal is important. Sure. And you're referring to the independent craft brewer seal. It's the upside down beer bottle. It says certified um, craft brewer and it's backed by the National Association. It's a certified trademark. And that certified mark has been adopted by more than 3,600 breweries, which is amazing, in one year's time. Just getting started. Um, and anytime you make moves uh, as the association, there's going to be people that think you went too far, people that think you didn't go far enough. And I always say, great, that means we're right in the middle and we're doing a great job. <laughs> and um, it's about transparency. Doing a certified mark to back who is a craft brewer has been an option for decades. And I said, um, as I said earlier, 2006 is since we've had the actual craft brewer definition, but that's a little bit um, vague. It's not hard to know what that is. So if you see this upside down beer bottle on a beer label, on a package, on a can, on the on the case box, on a brewery front door, you're, many of you are probably, you know, you go to that handle and there's the sticker right there, that upside down bottle. It means that that brewer is proud to wave the independent flag. And they're not saying that anyone else makes bad beer. They're saying, I'm independent, support me too. It's about sales and support. And it's, a, it's about putting beer above convenience. Because let's face it, big beer has the easiest access. The majority of distributors in the United States are owned or controlled by big beer. And when you get to the heart of what how beer gets to market, craft brewers do not have the equal opportunity. Um, of 98% of the 6,600 breweries, they only have less than 13% of the beer share by volume. That means we're not in a balanced marketplace. So the independent craft brewer seal is a chance for transparency. And since the big brewers, we called on them in 2012 through a very famous statement of craft versus crafty um, to say we believe in transparency and brand ownership. Please put your you know, parent company on the, on the label of the beer brands that you own. Nothing happened. We, we were front and center. And so it was time to go one step further. So we flipped the script and we've given craft brewers a chance to say that they're independent over having to wait to have Big Beer put their their you know their name on the labels. Yeah, I remember it was a, a few years ago when Trogues went through their big rebrand. And I remember the biggest thing that jumped out at me was that uh, they removed the word craft from their label. And it became Trogue's Independent Brewing. Yeah. And it was, everybody was talking about, oh, I don't know if I like the hand-drawn art. And, 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 and like the marketer me is going like, there is a word missing. There is like <laughs> legitimately a word missing from their brand. Like it's gone. And nobody was talking about it. So I reached out to them and they sent me back a really honest, candid response. And they said, you know, 
they were they weren't like making a bed or trying to do something in particular it was just like people care about independence the word craft just doesn't carry that kind of weight anymore it's going to be more of an independence game going forward and we want to lead with our independence and I thought that was interesting and a little bit ahead of the curve and I remember asking other people you know do you feel like independence is really going to become the thing and people would kind of be like yeah you know it's already kind of a thing but it's become a thing yeah like you, I remember when we were at CBC, it was the, it was about the small independent brewer. Like those were the two like lead lines. Like I was starting to like keep a tick of how long, how many times Bob P <laughs> said that, and you know, along with his revolution line. Uh, but it was it, it's been interesting to see what are the shifting priorities in terms of the beer buyer and what they value when they're making their choices at the tap line or at the retail store. Uh, I, have an, uh, I have an answer to that, but yeah. you looked like a fearless leader had an interjection. So I no, 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 go. I'll, I'll ask my question next. Okay, sounds good. Uh, I mean, it, it, we are doubling down on independence, um, and craft is still deliberately a part of the seal. Um, we don't want to see the concept of craft be so watered down. There's a reason other industries, frankly, are capitalizing on the concept of craft. Craft brewers brought it to the table. Craft brewers brought beer back from the brink. Craft brewers are craft brewers. But on top of that, the ownership is really what we found matters and resonates um, with beer lovers. Uh, in design of the seal, we definitely did research. It's been certainly a multi-year project to get it launched of June of last year. But uh, we found that 92% of the beer lovers we put a seal in front of um, at the time, it wasn't the final upside down bottle, but it was similar, um, said, yes, this would matter to me to see that in and to help influence my, my purchasing decisions. 92%. So very powerful stuff. And we have lots of statistics on the seal. Brewersassociation.org is, is a great place to go as, as well as craftbeer.com. So what about the, the breweries that kind of blur from an ownership standpoint where it's maybe a capital group mm -hmm. that owns them or it's a like a Sam Adams that has a, an umbrella of other places. What's the Brewers Association's view on those types of arrangements? Sure. I mean, we the definition is very cut and dry. Small is less than 6 million barrels of beer a year. Uh, Samuel Adams and Yinling, I always say, is the most advanced producing craft brewer. There are less than 6 million barrels of beer a year. Independent ownership means that you cannot have more than 25% ownership by a um, beverage alcohol company that is not a craft brewer themselves. Uh, okay. Certainly a mouthful, but it, it does resonate. Um, so that means when, you know, a big brewer would purchase another brewer, then they're, they're out. Uh, you know, several brewers have made moves and they only have less, just shy of 25% ownership. And that shows that the definition matters. And then the independent component um, has to do with the majority of fermented beverages that you make as brewery must be beer. Um, and then getting to your question, I mean... Uh, private equity is not going to get you 9,000 placements in 60 days at retail, right? Private equity is a means to an end for financial means yeah. to grow your company. Sure, private equity has its own risks and pitfalls, but it also has its pros over its cons. Um, and it's very different than what we're getting out of the anti-competitive, frankly, marketplace that we exist in. Um, and the large brewers, the big four, especially the big two, have competitive advantages that the rest of um, today's breweries just simply don't. So private equity is not accounted for in the definition. Um, where does your bank money come from? 
from? When you borrow money to, to be a small business, where's that money coming from? Which bank are you using? We don't get into the intricacies of where money comes from um, in terms of ownership. It's just the um, who is the owner. Okay. That starts to what so that starts to what matters. Private equity, ones that are owned by private equity companies, they can still mm-hmm. use the brewery. The, the brewery brand. in California, um, Oscar Blues Holdings, right? Canarchy. Yeah. They they are full front and center amazing craft brewers to watch each making their own individual moves and with their own personality and um that is that is not tied to what this definition is about and that's a i think sometimes that's where there's there's some kind of an unfair criticism to the larger craft breweries that have gotten to the point where they have started to acquire and sometimes just to save that brewery's existence. I mean, Dogfish or, Head, who we revere, um, has sold 15% to private equity with the option to buy it back yeah. from the family when they're able to. It's a means to an end. This is about American business. American businesses need finances to survive. And some breweries are going to sign up and say, yes, I want to sell out. I want to be owned by the largest global conglomerate. More power to them. But they do not then need the same help and 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 then they instantly have incredible assets and resources that the other brewers that they're competing against simply just don't. Yeah. Private equity is not going to plug you into what we're getting at in the big scheme of things. Well, we also see it with breweries where they're almost not necessarily, it's kind of the unfair criticisms or characterizations. You see that with larger craft breweries where they get so big, it's like, oh, well, they might as well have sold out. You know, like it's it, it's so strange. It, and I think you see this not just in beer, you see this everywhere. Yeah. You see it in how people view celebrities or how they view other businesses. Right. Yeah. It's like you can be successful to a point. And then after yeah, we that. We only cheer for you until you get to a certain level. And, and then, then it's like. Eh, whatever. But the other piece of it, too, is that I think sometimes people forget, you know, there there are certain like if you want to make massive investments, if you want to because like it, it's kind of like when you do when you start hitting certain growth tiers, you know, organic financing may only get you to a certain point. And sometimes you do need that private equity investment in order to make those generational types of changes that you want to see, especially businesses where, you know, maybe it is the neighborhood tap room, maybe it's not. But I've talked to a couple of breweries and they say, you know, sometimes they do this because they remember, you know, it's not just them anymore. It's not just their family. Like they employ maybe a hundred people, hundreds of people. Yeah. And they want to be able to provide, to be the good business owners, to, to provide security beyond when they decide to step down. Yeah. Crack brewers employ 135,000 full and part-time jobs. Don't know the percentage of private equity um, in the space. Um, and there's certainly, ad- admittedly, again, the pitfalls of will they want to be flipped, right? Is it, it's just, is it just an investment? But we're learning a lot and watching what private equity companies are getting involved in this space. And they realize that they're engaged with people that are selling over to them in a way that they have standards to be met. And so I think they're teaching private equity a thing or two, too, which is nice. So I'll just point out that it is 2.03 oh, now. Oh, let's wrap it up. So I'm fine with going further, but if you want to get back to uh, the conference. Well, yeah, we you got, well, this is very cerebral. I love it. We don't have beer. Don't love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the uh, the sessions are about to start. Yeah. But what a what a great thing, I think, to get an opportunity. This, is, this to me, is what beer is all about. Your listeners, if they care enough to be engaged in th- listening to this type of podcast, then they're really, we are really using beer, not just as a means to an end of an enjoyable beverage in the glass, but to something more, to culture, to community, to connection to others. And so that's what I love. 
in this kind of conversation. So I have one more quick question because it's something I've always wondered about where, especially in, in any kind of relationship where it seems that it would be a very adversarial, is there an open dialogue between the Brewers Association and like the executives at Anheuser-Busch and uh, Coors Miller or is it kind of like you stay in your own corners and don't meet so that... I think two great, easy answers to that. Number one, they're members of ours. So as the National Trade Association, Liz just raised an eyebrow. I like that. I can do that too, you know. One eyebrow goes up. Um, We have associate members and we have voting members. And, you know, big big brewers are associate members of ours. They caucus and powwow. They contribute to our content. You know, Draft Beer Quality Manual, for example, is an amazing resource that has probably close to 100,000 plus out there in the space to get retailers to be better at draft. You know, big brewers are on those committees and contributing to the content in a way that's the same. I mean, we're really smart about how and where to work together. And then we realize where there's certain divides. Um, Crazy, you know, recent article of Coors being... um, uh, critical of the Craft Brewers Conference keynote. You brought up Bob Pease, and he is our CEO. Um, you could look up to the media articles on that, and there was, you know, definite good dialogue after that. We absolutely de- um, interface with uh, executives from every brewery that are our members. So that's that's the answer there. Yeah, because I remember when Devil's Backbone made the transition from um, from when they were they were a member as a craft brewer and then they were bought out. Yes, I remember the the comment was made that um, they were transitioning to a, do, a different tier of membership. Like they were still in the family, but you know, just kind of a different kind of family. And Steve Crandall <laughs> at the time was on our board of directors, and then the transition created him not to be able to be a representative of the board. Mm-hmm. You have to be from a brewery that's a voting member. So that was definitely interesting times. And um, yeah, I mean, there's great place that the beverage of beer should and could be working together to advance the beverage, and we need to continue to work harder to do that. Yeah, because despite all their faults, they are, due to their endless resources, there are some things that they are really good at and can help the smaller guys. Absolutely, and and making world-class quality beer. I, I want to thank both of you for taking your time out from the conference and to uh, sit down with me and talk. And it was a pleasure getting to know you, Julia, and meeting you. Thank you. Yeah, this uh, half of the reason why I wasn't talking sometimes is that I was sitting across going... I've loved her for years. Oh, that's so <laughs> wow. She's one of like my hero bureau sheroes. You know? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that makes my day. <laughs> hey, so. uh, thank you everyone for listening. Cheers. Right, good beers to everybody. All right, bye. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Yeah.